In November 2021, the nations of the world sent representatives to Glasgow, Scotland, for COP26, that is, the 26th annual United Nations meeting about climate change. At the same time, climate activists from around the world also converged on Glasgow for protests demanding rapid government action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If you just watch footage of the protests, you might think government officials and climate activists never communicate directly with one another, but that is not true. The whole goal of a mass movement is to change public opinion and to get government to change its policies. This means protests and lawsuits, but it also includes direct communication with political leaders, both at the national level and in states and cities. The last episode explored the basics of how local government works, the kinds of things California cities and counties are responsible for, and who does what within a city government. In this episode, we're going to look at how and when you can most effectively interact with your local government. You'll hear from some of the government officials I introduced in the last episode, and from some new voices, including young people who have experienced talking and working with local government. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. The students I interviewed for this project had different levels of concern about climate change, and they also had different experiences trying to fight it. Some of them worried about it, but felt helpless to make a difference. Some were deeply engaged in activism, especially protests. And still others questioned the value of these kinds of actions. Most of them were a little hazy on the details about exactly what they could do to get governments to make policy changes. This episode tries to answer that question. How specifically can you engage with local government to try to shape laws, regulations, infrastructure, and spending to build the future that you want in your hometown? The show is divided into three parts. City council meetings, that's part one. Community engagement is part two. And part three, we'll hear from some young people who are working in government. Up first, city council meetings. This is the most visible part of local government. In the last episode, you met Karen Pincus, city manager of El Cerrito. She described these meetings. Uh, city council meetings are meant to be very open and for the public and that anyone can come and speak and, you know, learn about what's going on. Karen, along with all the other people I spoke with who work in local government, said they want to hear from the community. I think that the work I do is work directly for the people. Like I said, I impact how people feel about where they live. And I think that the more people that get involved, the better we are at it. Because if people aren't involved, then we're just doing our own thing. You know, I mean, that's, that doesn't help anybody. We need to be responsive to what people want. And I don't know what you want unless you tell me. There are lots of ways to do this, which I'll get into later. But right now, we're just focusing on a particular type of meeting. City councils and county boards of supervisors meet regularly to discuss policies, to hear from departments, to approve the budget, and to vote on laws, which are called ordinances at the city level. 
Let me pause here for a quick note. It is going to get really awkward if I have to keep saying city councils and county boards of supervisors over and over again. So for most of the episode, I'm just going to reference cities. But almost all of what I'm saying is also true for counties and county boards of supervisors. So if you live in an unincorporated area and a county is your local government, what I'm saying is still applicable to you, just to be clear. So back to the meetings. The exact schedule for city council meetings depends on the place. So for example, in Amador, the smallest city in California, the city council meets at 5 p.m. on the third Thursday of every month. In Los Angeles, on the other hand, which is a lot bigger, the city council meets Tuesday, Wednesday, and sometimes Friday every week starting at 10 a.m. The schedule is always available on the city's website along with the meeting agenda, so you know what topics will be discussed. You have to figure out how to make the time to attend, which might be a real challenge, but if you can find the time, the meeting is open to you. There is no age limit. You show up, sign up to speak, and you get three minutes. And now, in the last couple of years, because of COVID, you can even attend by Zoom in a lot of places instead of going in person. New ordinances don't happen in a single meeting, though. Here's Dana Murray. She's the Environmental Sustainability Manager from Manhattan Beach, who you met in the last episode. Last year um, in the city of Manhattan Beach, we passed what at the time was the most comprehensive plastic pollution reduction policy in the country. But during that process, you know, we, myself and the city attorney, didn't just write up the law. We first had a city council meeting where we discussed, I, I had already researched best practices and options for city council and pretty much presented them the science, what other cities were doing and what our options could be. And then they gave staff direction on what they would like to see city staff pursue for a law. And during that council meeting is when members of the public, including teenagers in our community, adults, came and gave public comment to try to influence their decision makers on what they wanted to see them include. So that's usually one of the first places that you want a com community to get involved and try to influence what their decision makers do. Um, people can also have one-on-one -on -one conversations with their elected officials. That's also very Im important. And the third way is usually by writing written comments. I found in my profession that if it's a highly technical thing, then written comments are important. But I think the most compelling way is to give public comment in person during the decision-making process, because then the elected officials, they're looking right at you, and they have you to be accountable to. Um, and so I've seen that that's been a very powerful way. After we have that kind of discussion on what the policy might look like and get the direction from council, then staff will usually go and create the first draft of what that law, that ordinance in a local government would look like. And that's where when we bring that back to council, usually there's very little room for changes in that. Sometimes there's small changes, especially if we can anticipate if there's probably still some debate on council. So we'll have maybe a couple different versions. And so our city attorney has been able to insert like a sentence or a clarification during that meeting. And then laws, ordinances have to come back a second time for a second reading to get adopted. And usually that second reading of the ordinance is the clean version that has all the changes that were made at the previous meeting. But large changes, if council decides to make large changes at that first reading of the ordinance, then we often need to come back with a, a new version. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? If you haven't been to a city council meeting, it's super dense. It's so inaccessible and unpalatable. This is Juan Flores from South Sacramento. When we spoke, he was 19 and had just finished his freshman year at UCLA. 
He had experience interning in a legislative office and also as a community organizer. I, you know, I've, I've worked in this space for, what can I say, like four years now. And there's, I still, I'm having a hard time processing so many different moving parts. So when we're talking to these politicians and we don't understand uh, a politician response of like, we'll look into it or, you know, other, other vague um, responses, I think we have to definitely learn how to make it more accessible. Juan is right. For those of us who are not familiar with them, city council meetings can be very confusing. Partly this is because the subjects being discussed are complex, but it's also because of some of the rules about procedure. I want to ask you about a common frustrating scenario. So here it is. You organize a group of fellow activists. Let's say there's 25 of you. And you get everybody to show up at the city council meeting. And you speak during the public comment at the very beginning of the meeting. And you share your idea for this new thing that you want the city council to do. And when you are done, the city council members all just kind of look at you and... And that's it, right? They don't do anything. Yeah. Can you explain to me why that happens and how to make that not happen? I'm talking here with Sky Woodruff. He's a city attorney and my husband. In the last episode, I introduced him and he helped me describe all the different kinds of local government agencies at work in California. In his role representing cities, he attends a lot of city council meetings. In fact, if you and your climate action club, for example, showed up to a city council meeting in one of his cities and shared a really great idea in the public comments period, and the city council started discussing how they might adopt your really great idea, it would be his job to interrupt them and remind them to stop talking about it. Which sounds ridiculous, right? Well, first, let me tell you about a law called the Brown Act, which is California's open meetings law that applies to cities and counties. There are four things that I want you to know about it. The first is that with some exceptions, the meetings of the city council have to be open to the public. So far, so good. This means the public gets to see government happening. The second is that They have to publish an agenda of the business that the city council will conduct, and that has to be available to the public 72 hours in advance. Also good. They have to give you three days notice about everything they're going to be talking about. Third, uh, the members of the public um, have the right to speak on every item of business that's on the agenda and to make general comments to the council about about other things. So the beginning of the meeting, like you were mentioning. This sounds good, too. For example, people in Manhattan Beach knew ahead of time that the plastic law was going to be discussed because it was on the agenda for that meeting. And the fourth thing, and this is the frustrating part, is that the city council can only take action on the items that are listed on that agenda. So if you bring up a new topic, they can't talk about it. They can talk about it briefly. They can ask for it to be put onto a future agenda for further discussion and action, but they can't take action on it on the night that your group of activists shows up at the meeting. Okay. And so that's why they give you that kind of like blank look and you feel like you put all this together and nothing happened. Exactly. The Brown Act exists to keep politicians from making decisions in secret, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. But it can also make speaking at a city council meeting feel pretty frustrating. Juan explained this process from his perspective, doing community development organizing in South Sacramento. We have unfortunately relegated the responsibility of social change to people who do not have the capacity to engage in it. Uh, 
and and what I mean by that is like this top-down engagement of like uh, government of like well we're giving we're giving you the space like in city council meetings for example they're like we're giving you the space for public comment but there's no one that participates we're giving you this ability to participate and you're not participating so like this top-down engagement which is like basically checking a box it's not really building that relationship building that um, powerful connection with the community and local government in other episodes i've mentioned cal enviroscreen which is a mapping tool that lets you see which communities are the most vulnerable to the likely impacts of climate change this is because they are already experiencing a combination of factors like exposure to lots of different pollutants poor health poverty and more Some of these neighborhoods originally emerged out of segregationist practices. They are often places where a city or county has chosen to locate hazardous industries and has failed to maintain infrastructure for a long time, which means residents already have bad experiences with government decisions. But these are the places where government needs to do the most work adapting infrastructure for climate change. And then, on top of all that historical context, there is just the issue of time. We are not considering how these communities are also on survival mode, how we are asking them to participate and engage when they have like a nine to five, they have, or they now have two jobs, they have kids to take care of, they have a billion other responsibilities and we're still asking them to participate and engage when they don't have the capacity to. In some ways, virtual meetings have improved the situation, but no matter when government meetings are scheduled, many people will be unable to attend. Add to that finding out which topics will be on the agenda, plus the time to actually understand the complexities of different projects. You can see why all of us who are not involved in government often have trouble figuring out when to show up and what to say. These are all real obstacles that get in the way of civic engagement, but Juan does want people to attend city council meetings. We don't need everyone to attend every city council meeting or everyone to attend every town hall, but social change starts with the simple action of acknowledging that there is a problem and that there is potential for change, and that comes with understanding your role in it. And um, simply by building that small investment of saying your health will be impacted, um, your family will be impacted by this policy or will be impacted in a positive way by you engaging in this capacity. I think we're able to get that ball rolling and have really productive conversations and really productive work towards the outcome that we want to see in our community development work. In his community development activism, Juan helped people understand how cities related to their own lives. That was the first step toward more authentic, more effective engagement with government. What might this mean for you? Let's say you're a part of a climate action club and your group wants your city to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions and start preparing for high heat days. You've learned about some innovative ideas and you want to see them implemented in your own community. What then? Well, first you need to do some research. Is your city already working on these things or are you trying to get them to take up something new? And how do you even know what your city is working on? Start with their website. 
look at maybe a year's worth of agendas for city council meetings and the meetings of the boards and commissions of the city that list the business that the city's already working on, a lot of times the staff will make presentations to those bodies about things that are going to come back to them in the future, um, but that they want to give a heads up about. You can see city council agendas on every city's website. If there's a staff presentation or report, it will often show up as a link on the agenda. And on a lot of city websites, you can even see video of each meeting. In a small city, a group of people might be able to divide the task and actually watch all the presentations for all the departments, but in a larger city, that would be overwhelming. Instead, it would make sense to just focus on one or two departments. For example, many larger cities actually have a whole department devoted to sustainability, and you could start there. Sky also recommends that you look at the budget presentation to get a big picture view. Because a lot of times, uh, that document and that presentation will give you a pretty clear picture of some of the biggest ticket items that the city plans on working on in the next 12 months. If you manage to do all that, you will definitely have questions and probably some thoughts you want to share. So next, who can you talk to? A lot of times for things that a city is already working on, uh, the staff will be setting up community meetings about it to get specifically to get public input, and they will put out notices about that. And so one of the things that you can do in addition is to go onto the city's website and f get onto their mailing lists for all the different things that they are putting out both at the, at the individual level and at the department level. City council members, county supervisors, city managers, departments all often publish newsletters or updates. Another task for a group of you working together might be to get on these mailing lists and keep track of the different meetings seeking community input for different projects. If you can show up at a community meeting with a large group of interested people, that is great. But what if there isn't a community meeting already scheduled? Or what if no one seems to be working on the things that interest you? If you live in a bigger city or um, even if you're not in such a big city, your city council might have elections by district which means that there's a city council member that represents the area where you live. You could reach out to that individual or you could reach out to multiple members of the city council and tell them about your interest in this topic and find out how you could get more information and make proposals about what the final policy is going to look like. If you find out that the city is already working on it, sometimes there will be a staff member or staff members who are the people who are assigned to sort of shepherd it. And in that case, uh, you could reach out directly to those staff members. A lot of times, uh, boards and commissions in a city will play a role in shaping that policy, and they will be holding meetings. But rather than wait for their meetings, you could also reach out directly to members of, of the board or commission that's going to be working on it. And then last, um, in some case, in some cities, the city manager is fairly responsive to calls and emails and will at least get back to you and direct you to the right people to talk to about it. Could you also try to get onto one of the boards or commissions that's working on it? Yeah. One of the things to look out for is that cities are required to publish a list of um, boards and commissions that have openings on them. And the application process is open and you can fill out an application and, and submit it and try to get onto that board or commission so that you can actually play an active role in shaping the policy that way. The basic idea is that you should be able to engage somehow with both representatives and city staff outside of city council meetings. 
In a really big city, the legislators themselves might not meet with you directly, but they do have office staff whose job is to talk to people who live in their districts. Government projects take a long time, and ideally, you want to maintain periodic communication throughout the process of an ongoing project. This could mean attending community meetings, reading the notices the staff post, and occasionally calling or emailing to ask questions or share ideas. You can also invite representatives or staff to come speak in your classes or try to arrange community meetings at your school where students and parents can easily attend. And you can reach out to elected officials and staff and try to convince them to introduce new policies. Going back to the single-use plastics law in Manhattan Beach, that got onto the city council agenda because of communication between community members, city council, and Dana Murray, who took it up as part of her work on sustainability. So let's say you're doing all this, you're keeping up with developments, you're attending community meetings, and you're talking to staff and city council members. Should you also go to city council meetings? Yes. If you've been attending community meetings for a project, your group should show up at city council meetings every time that project is on the agenda, either to speak in support of it or to argue for changes you'd like to see. Your voices can influence what the city council tells staff to do, and you can influence how the council votes if they're being asked to make a decision. In other words, attending city council meetings is part of a larger strategy. Is there ever a good reason to show up at the city council meeting with, you know, 50 supporters, all of whom have great things to say about what, you know, a particular idea? And you mean showing up cold where maybe this isn't something on the agenda and you're not even sure the city's working on it. Or maybe you've done all the contacting, you've done all the reaching out, et cetera, and nobody has responded to you. Yeah. So I think that showing up with at a city council meeting to speak under the general public comment with a large contingent of supporters um, who are able to demonstrate that they're there to support your comments, um, or maybe two or three of you speak and, and you ask them all to stand or something else to show their support for your comments. That can be an effective way to let the city council members and the staff know that there's significant public support for this idea, but you shouldn't be, have that be your only thing that you do. There has to be follow up. And so it's a, it's a great way to introduce the topic, but you should then follow up immediately with the city council, the city manager, um, with an explanation of your idea and, and, um, start engaging with them about how to develop policy around it. Okay. So it's either like that's your opening act as you're about to start trying to follow a policy through a long process to try to get someone's attention, or maybe you've already been following it and this is your show of support in the moment. That's right. This is also a place where protest can intersect with government. Protest is a way of influencing policy, and sometimes the situation is more complex than it seems. Donna Colson, a city council member in Burlingame, California, talked to me about how young speakers at a city council meeting and young protesters sometimes actually help city council members. Is it helpful to you as a city council member to have students coming in and being strident about that? Yeah, and a really good example was that of that was around um, gun safety laws. Uh, you know, it, after Parkland, um, we were fortunate enough to have um, a couple of the Parkland kids come out, and it was the massive student rallies that we had here in town, and the students taking to the streets and demanding action on, you know, for example, gun safety, that um, propelled the. Um, 
the council to, you know, immediately draft probably what is some of the strictest safety language in probably the state of California. And that same kind of engagement and action can help. I, I don't want to use the term give us cover, but it certainly um, allows us to activate. And it's really hard because these kids don't have a vote. Um, they really, they don't, but their parents do. And they, they're coming to us with facts and data and information and their real life stories and their real life concerns is a way for us to then explain to the broader community why it's so important to make these um, changes in an efficient and timely way. In other words, sometimes protesters are pushing politicians to do things they don't want to do. But protests can also open up political space for legislators to create or enact certain policies that they did want to do. This is why protest and discussion with government are actually complementary parts of one process, not two entirely separate things. Let's pause and review part one. So far, you've heard about the Brown Act, which governs some of the underlying procedures in public meetings in California. You've heard about ways to learn what your city is working on. And finally, you heard suggestions for different ways that you, as a member of the community, can engage with your government both in and, most importantly, beyond city council meetings. Part 2. Community Engagement If you listened to the last episode, you know elected officials like city council members set policy and vote on the budget. But the staff do the work of researching and writing new laws, or ordinances, as they're called at the city level. They manage the planning process for city infrastructure, and they're also responsible for getting community input on projects as they move through this process. They are expected to incorporate this information into the planning process, including letting the city council know what the public wants. This idea of community engagement shows up all over the place, in urban planning and government, but also in public health, in education, in scientific research, in international organizations. The fundamental idea is pretty straightforward. If you are trying to do something in a particular community of people, involve them in the planning process because they know things you don't know. California state laws require local governments to seek community engagement for all kinds of planning processes. But what exactly is the best way to do that? Say you're trying to plan for how your coastal city is going to respond to sea level rise. How soon do you bring people into the process, and what kind of relationship should you be building with them? How do you balance their expertise from living in the neighborhood against scientists' and engineers' expertise about sea level rise, ecology, and infrastructure? Plus, keep in mind... These community members have jobs or school or kids to take care of. How do you get meaningful input from them in a reasonable amount of time? There is no simple answer, although you can find guidance about best practices from environmental justice organizations, urban planning organizations, and a bunch of others. I asked both staff and young people about their experiences in this process. So first, the staff perspective, and we'll start in the Central Valley. I'm Rob Ball, and I work for Kern Council of Governments. We're the Regional Transportation Planning Agency and the Metropolitan Planning Organization for Kern County, California. 
This is one of those things that seems like it has nothing to do with you, but actually affects you every single day. If you've ever bought gas, you might have noticed a tag on the gas pump about taxes on gasoline. Californians pay 18.3 cents per gallon in federal taxes, plus 51.1 cents per gallon in state taxes on every gallon of gasoline. That money funds all kinds of transportation projects, and those projects have to be planned out. Every part of the state has a regional transportation planning agency, and since transportation accounts for about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions in California, this work is directly related to climate change mitigation. Rob's agency does this planning for 11 cities in Kern County, plus the county as a whole. So if you live in Kern County, he is helping make decisions about how this gas tax money will be used in your community. A lot of the transportation infrastructure that uh, we see and use every day, uh, from uh, sidewalks and streets to uh, our transit service, is, you know, it's taken for granted. Uh, you, you don't realize that you are uh, actually paying into the transportation funding pots that fund those activities. Rob and his colleagues work on everything from roads to sidewalks to buses to bike trails and bike lanes. They also get housing developers, for example, to design more walkable subdivisions. And they work to acquire zero-emission buses. Their priorities are partly influenced by state and federal policies. For example, one of the uh, air quality is one of the key areas. Uh, transportation is a major contributor to air quality issues. and uh, Some of the funds are specifically for uh, helping the transportation system clean up its air. To access the tax money, every four years, the agency has to update its regional transportation plan. And that plan has to include information about how the agency will lower its greenhouse gas emissions. The updates reflect changing conditions. For example, Rob told me that in their most recent plan, they're doing five times as many bike-related projects as they thought they would be eight years ago. Uh, primarily, uh, is been there, there's been a change in the uh, uh, state legislation on uh, what we are to use our transportation dollars for. But also, it's driven a lot by ground-level support for making sure that we have safe bike facilities for, for everybody within the community. When he says ground-level support for safe bike facilities, he means people in the region told the agency that's what they wanted. In 2018, they got input from 6,000 community members. And so we do a lot of analysis uh, uh, for environmental justice communities within our region. I've mentioned the Cal Virus Screen mapping tool before. An environmental justice community is a place that scores 75 or above on that map. Uh, that 6,000 people that we hit, part of that is a uh, phone survey, a statistically valid phone survey that, uh, that tries to reach, uh, you know, the Spanish-speaking community and get a fairly good representative, not just in our urban area where two-thirds of the population has been uh, out in the outlying areas. And so it's, uh, I think it's been uh, uh, that effort that has really helped our transportation planning process develop a ground-level grassroots support for strategies like the bike uh, paths and, and uh, increased telecommuting and these types of things that we're going after. 
Beginning back in 2008, a law called SB 375 required transportation agencies to work on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but there is more than one way of doing this. Comments from the public can push the agency to prioritize particular types of projects over others. It was interesting how uh, we didn't hear the concern for climate change very much, but we did hear a lot of concern for air quality. And it's one of the things uh, the, about air quality is uh, the, the strategies that you use to reduce or improve air quality also benefit climate change. And so within our region, we have been really on the forefront of uh, attacking the air quality issues. Our high emissions economy is causing poor air quality and intensifying climate change at the same time. But the people who commented during the regional transportation plan process wanted the agency to focus on air quality. That's understandable. California's Central Valley has some of the worst air quality in the country, partly because of pollution generated within the valley, but also because pollution from other parts of the state, like my part of the state, blows in and sits over the valley. The community members told Rob's agency to concentrate on plans that would improve their day-to-day experience with polluted air, without reference to climate change. Rob and his colleagues had to figure out how to integrate that with state laws about greenhouse gas emissions. Wherever you live in California, there is an agency in charge of transportation planning. Every four years, they update their plans about how to reduce emissions and which projects and neighborhoods to prioritize. You can check out their website to see where they are in their work if you want to, but you don't have to wait for them to survey you or post a meeting schedule. You can call them. Is there any limitation on a student being involved in like community meetings about something like that? If someone, you know, 16 years old was really interested in that, would they be able to participate? Uh, None whatsoever. And we actually encourage it. In our first SCS, we were actually uh, sort of invited to a high school. And uh, we've worked with other uh, groups uh, called Future Farmers of America and had uh, high schoolers come in and do special focus groups with high schoolers. And so uh, we love to do that because uh, it's the high schoolers that are going to be here. Transportation plan goes out uh, 24 years. They're the ones that are going to be here and, and experiencing what that transportation is. Uh, and, and so the decisions we make today are the ones that uh, they're, they're going to benefit or uh, have have the most effect on. And if you hear of any teachers in, uh, that are interested in having a presentation uh, down here in the current area on the regional transportation planning process, uh, uh, we have PowerPoint and we'll travel. The community engagement Rob described is connected to a particular project. And in addition to this kind of community interaction, some local governments are using another technique in their planning around climate change. Here is Dana Murray again from Manhattan Beach. I've created a group called the Sustainability Youth Council here in Manhattan Beach, which are 5th through 12th graders. Right now we have 20 of them, and um, they help me do the environmental outreach in the community at fairs and festivals. They work on projects in their schools that are environmental sustainability related, and I also have what's called a sustainability task force, and those are adults in the community. So there's about 10 to 15 community members and about 15 staff members. And we meet regularly, and we also um, do research and implement projects that council has identified as priorities. So in this way, a lot of things I embark on, it's not just me working on them, it's not just council directing it, but it's a lot of it's community driven, which from my days in nonprofits, that's how you really get real work done, meaningful work, and you get buy-in from the community to influence it. 
Dana created the Adult Sustainability Task Force first, then the task force came up with the idea for the Sustainability Youth Council. So we did have to bring the idea to a council meeting. We wrote up what the parameters would be, um, what the guidelines would be, and we posted a sample application. And that was approved by council, and they wanted us to come back six months later to give a little update on how it was going, because it's an experiment. Youth engagement is happening in other places, too. Here's Donna Colson, city council member from Burlingame. We also have a youth advisory committee, and this year their project is sustainability. Did the city create that youth, youth advisory committee, or did students come to you and say, wouldn't it be great if you created this? I think it was a little bit of both. We had a lot of students trying to figure out how to interact with city council, and so um, we formed this youth advisory committee. It's, I think, from like 11 years old to 18, and all different schools, you either have to go to school or live in the city. And the kids um, pick their own projects. This year, it's sustainability. They do a video. They do fundraisers around it. They do outreach. And um, they're, they're, they're quite effective because I'll tell you, parents listen to their kids a lot more than they probably listen to their city councilwoman. Dozens of cities in California have various types of ongoing youth councils. And these bodies are organized differently from one place to another. Check the Future Imperfect page for a link to a listing where you can see examples from across the state. I also spoke with Tiffany Wise-West, the Sustainability and Climate Action Manager for the city of Santa Cruz. She brought young people into the pre-planning stages of the updating of the city's climate action plan. I have a set of youth advisors, and I think that it's useful for them to see the, the planning process itself but to also become more deeply familiar with some of those decarbonization mechanisms that go beyond just behavior choice. So I, I, I feel really like we're at a very unique time and opportunity with respect to youth. When she says decarbonization mechanisms, she means laws and government plans that move us away from using fossil fuels. I do think also with youth, what I've learned to date working um, with them is that you need to provide flexible points of entry to this work. Some students may be interested in participating on an ongoing basis in a task force, but others might just want to duck in and out of, say, a webinar or something else like that. And so I think really building in those multiple opportunities is key. This task force is in between the kind of engagement Rob Ball described and the youth councils in Manhattan Beach and Burlingame. It's focused around a single project, but Tiffany Wisewest brought the group in from the very start with the idea that she could consult with them repeatedly through the project. Now, let's flip the perspective. What does it feel like to be a young person on the other side? You met Juan, a college student from South Sacramento, earlier in the show. I, w I was working with um, uh, this amazing mentor that brought me into um, meetings with the county, Sacramento County and uh, specifically Sacramento County planners um, to talk about uh, SB 1000 and its implementation, so an implementation of a very um, important bill. I think I need to pause here to help you understand what Juan was witnessing. SB 1000 is a 2016 law that affects how each city creates its general plan. Every city and county in California has to have what's called a general plan. The plan basically sets out goals for how the city will develop and change over the next 20 years, 
and it has to include information about a minimum of seven elements, and these are land use, circulation, housing, conservation, open space, noise, and safety. So the plan includes everything from new transportation goals to upgrading parks to fixing roads. According to the California Attorney General's office, quote, SB 1000 requires local governments to address pollution and other hazards that disproportionately impact low-income communities and communities of color in their jurisdiction. So if a city has any neighborhoods that score over 75 on that Cal and virus screen map, meaning they are polluted and or neglected and or struggling with poverty, the city has to add an eighth element to their general plan the next time they update it. This is called the environmental justice element, and in it, the city has to lay out its plan for improving those neighborhoods by, for example, reducing pollution or upgrading infrastructure. This is a way of trying to address historical and current injustices. And the law says that each local government has to engage residents of those neighborhoods in the planning process. So those meetings that Juan was in, those were Sacramento County government staff workers who were trying to figure out good methods for community engagement so that they could comply with SB 1000 when they next worked on their general plans. Back to Juan. And so uh, SB 1000, the bill basically twists, uh, and I say and I say twists because it's a very uncomfortable process for the governing bodies. And that like they are now supposed to include environmental just and an environmental justice component to the general plan, which means that they are that they need to engage the community and get their input for planning uh, how we plan to develop the city or the county moving forward. The law pushes local governments to engage with community members early in the process. They recommend forming relationships with community groups and creating task forces, like the youth group that Tiffany Wise West formed for Santa Cruz's Climate Action Plan. For Juan, being in the room was a learning experience. And I think that's when I really started to understand that taking up space, that being part, just sitting in and being part of a conversation, not necessarily contributing to it, but just being in that space and in that moment um, really impacts people. It's like a, a way to reclaim back that like, community power. I, I, it's very interesting that now I reflect on it and I um, being in similar spaces like that where I'm the only youth in the room. It's very interesting because I feel like I am, I carry the weight of my community. I'm a Latinx, uh, first-gen uh, student, first-gen immigrant, um, like all of these, you know, different identity markers that are not represented in the room. I feel like I carry this weird legacy. Um, I don't think in the moment I feel imposter syndrome, but surely enough I do when I start the actual like action part of it, the actual work where I'm not as experienced. I don't have the same training or education, but I absolutely have the living uh, proof, uh, the, the existence of being um, an active community member and being the person impacted by policy change. SB 1000 opens up opportunities for young people to engage with local government. But Juan's observations hint that the process is not simple. Getting into the room together is just the start. And while you are learning how to understand city planning, 
The staff, depending on their own past experiences, may be figuring out how to navigate a new, more collaborative process, and they may be working with a community of people they've never interacted with before. I'll end the section on community engagement with Moyes. He was a recent college graduate when I spoke with him. I live in Sacramento, and my work, um, I work for 350 Sacramento, um, which is a nonprofit here in Sacramento. Uh, officially, I'm their administrative coordinator, and I also volunteer heavily with um, Sunrise Movement Sacramento. 350 and Sunrise are both climate activism organizations. As an activist, Moyes is engaged with local government in Sacramento in multiple ways. For example, Sunrise organized to pressure the Sacramento City Council to declare a climate emergency and commit to aiming for carbon neutrality by 2030, rather than 2045, which was the state's goal. If we're just going and having like closed-door meetings with um, city staff, that's not something that's going to build the movement. That's just us speaking and engaging with them. And while we do have to speak and engage with them, it's also going out in public, going to city council meetings, making public comment. In other words, from an activist perspective, a city council meeting is two things at once. On one level, it's a place to engage with local leaders and get them to adopt certain policies. But at the same time, it's also a forum to raise awareness about climate change and invite other people to support their goals for climate change mitigation. The movement he described is growing and seems to be affecting actual policy. In the summer of 2021, the governor of California directed the state agencies to aim for carbon neutrality by 2035, 10 years earlier than originally. Moise has interacted with local government in other ways. In November of 2018, the mayors of Sacramento and West Sacramento established a group called the Mayor's Commission on Climate Change. The mayors asked the members to come up with a set of strategies the two cities could use to reach carbon neutrality by 2045. To do this, the commission needed to get input from a lot of different people, including youth, and one of the members of that commission was Dr. Robert Nelson, president of Sacramento State University. He turned to students on his campus for help. Moyes and his classmate Rachel Del Porto were the president and vice president of the Environmental Student Organization at Sac State. They organized and facilitated a student summit so that college-age people from the area could weigh in on the work of this commission. We got about 250-plus students um, from the local community colleges, from Sac State itself, and from UC Davis, um, and had basically a day-long summit on the Sac State campus where uh, students could show up to one of four, basically breakout discussion sessions and provide provide their comments, provide their input on um, some of the developed strategies for the Climate Commission. Student engagement in the process continued after the summit. Five technical advisory committees met regularly to support the work of the commission. Rachel and Moyes each sat on one of the committees, plus they attended commission meetings and made public comments. Finally, in June 2020, the commission was just about ready to pass along its recommendations to the cities. Right as it was about to finish, there was a concerted push, um, pushback from actually the natural gas industry and interests um, trying to get the commission to like pedal back on some of its recommendations that had been developed, um, wanting it to postpone the recommendations, um, slow down the timelines. And so what I did for that was basically do a call to action of my own. Um, So I sent out emails to all the students who had participated in in this as well as through um, the local environmental networks. Um, And so we generated 
over 130 public comments in support of the commission's um, recommendations. And those were all individually written personal narratives um, that were directly emailed to the commissioners. And then on the flip side, the natural gas interests had sent out this flyer. And so they also generated a hundred, just around 104 public comments against the commission adopting its recommendations. Um, but those were all basically like forms that were copied and pasted. Um, and so the commissioners saw that and saw, okay, on one side we have just this push from this industry, um, all these copied and pasted submissions. And then on the other side, we have hundreds of students um, writing personal narratives, writing why this is actually important to them. And we see that these are real people who have real cares and interests in this. Um, and so they ended up passing their final recommendations. One of the recommendations in the report had to do with how cities interact with different communities as they are planning for the city's future. As a member of the Technical Advisory Committee on Equity, this was something that Moyes worked on. We wanted to make sure that um, decisions and policies and projects that are implemented aren't just developed and then brought to a community and then like the community is then asked or like told that this is the project that we're going to be doing. Um, as a city, we wanted to make sure that community engagement, we wanted to really reimagine what that looks like, um, that it actually is built not for the community, but by the community. In the commission's final report, this shows up as something to be done immediately. The report recommends that the cities, quote, establish an environmental justice collaborative governance committee, that's long, facilitated by the cities, but led by the community to support marginalized communities, particularly communities of color and youth, in owning and shaping environmental solutions. The report was finalized, but the work wasn't done. It was still just a bunch of recommendations, not government actions yet. So next, people at a whole bunch of organizations, including 350 and Sunrise, reached out to their members to let them know that something important was coming up at a city council meeting soon so they could show up and speak in favor of it. At the same time, they reached out to city council members, doing exactly what you heard about earlier in the episode. They asked to meet with them individually to explain to them why parts of the report were so important and ask them to act on it right away. And this worked. On August 25th, the Sacramento City Council directed the staff to begin work on 10 items, all drawn from the report. One of these was to develop the Environmental Justice Collaborative Governance Committee. And now, in 2021, the committee exists. The 12 members meet monthly and give recommendations about projects to the Sacramento City Council four times a year. Moyes began his climate activism as a teen and has now turned it into a job that involves both community organizing, but also necessarily deep engagement with government. I'm going to end the episode with two young people who took a different path to address climate change. They each found a way to work in government on both mitigation and adaptation projects. Part three, working with government. So my name is Carissa Bradley. I'm currently serving as a Civic Spark Climate Fellow at Sierra Business Council in Truckee, California. I am 23 years old, so the word adult is pretty loose here. I don't know that I completely <laughs> feel like a full adult all the time, but so essentially a Civic Spark Climate Fellow with that title means that I'm participating in an 11 month 
uh, AmeriCorps Fellowship, where we do um, different capacity building projects all throughout the state of California. Civic Spark Fellows aren't technically government employees, but they are doing the same kinds of projects you've heard about in this episode and the last one. The program gives new college graduates a chance to get experience working on sustainability projects in government, and because of the way it's funded, it gives government agencies and some nonprofits a chance to get educated workers at a low cost. Carissa's career path began in her high school AP environmental science class. I'd always like thought that I wanted to go into like business or like law or something along those lines, just because I feel like um, growing up there their title, job titles that you're taught are real. Um, you don't really ever get to hear like, oh, I can be a climate adaptation specialist or I can do this or that. And I think that was my first time um, of hearing of jobs and things that really sparked my interest more. In college, Carissa majored in environmental science and got a minor in public administration. Then through CivicSpark, she was working with small cities in the Sierra. The Sierra Business Council, where she was a fellow, is a nonprofit organization, not a government. According to their website, quote, the Sierra Business Council's climate and energy team assists communities through the Sierra to proactively plan for climate change by reducing greenhouse gas emissions and adapting to changes already impacting the Sierra. Carissa worked on two main projects during her fellowship there. The first involved educating community members in the town of Portola about how to reduce fire danger. This is climate change adaptation. She also helped implement Nevada County's Energy Action Plan, which is sort of like the climate action plans I talked about in the last episode. This part of her job focused on climate change mitigation in that it was intended to reduce the intensity of climate change. Sierra Business Council wrote the plan, which included goals for energy use reductions by the county government and goals for reductions by the community. Then came community engagement. The government looked to community members to figure out how households and businesses could reduce their energy usage. It was my role as a Civic Spark Fellow to recruit and uh, facilitate that community working group. And that's, so that's been one of the, my main projects is to bring together a group of about 15 to 20 community members each month to talk about various strategies on how we're going to implement these goals and strategies. Uh, and breaking out into teams of like who's going to be working with schools, who will work on tourist destinations, then reducing those energy efficiency or energy rates. Is there an age requirement for people to be on a council like that? Like could a high school student do that? Yeah, a high school student could definitely do that. But most of the people who are on the the community working groups, at least from that I've seen in the other jurisdictions, but specifically in Nevada County, they are a little bit older, you know, they're retired or there are a lot of like executive directors or people who work for solar companies in the the area but i would say the median age range is like 40s to 70s so rather than being a community member trying to influence policy by speaking out at city council meetings or meeting with staff members carissa was the person asking for community input and as she pointed out most of the people giving that input were a lot older than her younger people the people who will be facing the challenges of aging alongside the most extreme effects of climate change, they are often very underrepresented in these kinds of conversations. 
Given her experience working with governments, I asked Carissa what she thinks are the hardest challenges facing us in terms of climate change mitigation and adaptation. She said the cost of responding to climate change is a big one. Infrastructure upgrades and forest management are very pricey, especially for small cities. But also... I think that community education, though, is, again, that is one of the most challenging issues because a lot of the communities feel like, oh, I didn't know about that, or oh, I had never heard that. No one from the city has ever said that, or no one from the county has ever said that. And so I think that, I, I just think that a lot of communities have felt like they're out of the loop, or and that's something that I think governments and all all organizations struggle with is, you know, being able to put that adequate amount of engagement into the communities. But I think all of us need to be a little bit better at, you know, building that community support and um, education. Earlier, you heard from Juan in South Sacramento about how he talked to people in his community about climate change adaptation. By explaining that climate change will impact their health, he helped his neighbors understand why it was important for them to speak up at meetings about infrastructure projects. In other words, he combined what he knew about his community from growing up in it with his knowledge about climate change. Carissa did the same thing, but in a different context. She grew up in a small Sierra town, so she understood political dynamics in similar communities in the region. This was useful in her work educating people about ways to reduce fire danger, among other things. So in some of our more um, conservative jurisdictions or, you know, jurisdictions that don't openly talk about the words climate change, um, it, it, it is a lot easier for us at SBC to kind of make the pitch of like, okay, well, let's talk about some adaptation strategies um, and kind of mask the conversation as more of like impacts um, without necessarily drawing that really distinct line. Um, because at the end of the day, you want to prepare communities as best as possible. She first learned how to navigate conversations about climate change at home. I know for me, when I was growing up, it was really hard to have those conversations with my parents and my family because they're um, predominantly conservative and they just thought, oh, here she is again talking about her liberal agenda or whatever it is. And I think that um, that can be really discouraging for young people. So I would just, just, just to say, like, if you can educate within your own family, familiar structure, you can make a big impact. I focused a lot on communication and community engagement in this episode because that's the primary way young people can influence local government while they're still in school. But once you've gotten a little more education, many more options are available to you. Carissa introduced me to a colleague who was doing very different work in another part of the state. About 200 miles northwest of Truckee, where Carissa was based, are the Shasta Dam and Shasta Lake, which is the biggest reservoir in the state. People all over California and the entire United States eat food grown using water from Shasta Lake. Sixty miles up the highway from the dam, at the headwaters of the Sacramento River, is the small city of Mount Shasta. Among its population of about 3,300 people was another Civic Spark fellow. My name is Frank Lyles. I work for the city of Mount Shasta, California, through the Civic Spark AmeriCorps Fellowship. I've been there for two years, but my job this year is to write a new stormwater master plan for the city of Mount Shasta. And so over the last year, 
I've written a new storm drain master plan for the city and then also help them with GIS, um, surveying a bunch of the infrastructure and getting basically all of their infrastructure digitized to GIS so that they can manage it. GIS stands for Geographic Information System. And you may not know the name, but you have almost certainly used a GIS map. If you've ever used a computer or your phone to look up a bus stop or a restaurant or to find directions, you are using a GIS map. Those maps don't just exist, they have to be created. The locations of restaurants and bus stops and roads have to be added to a database of information that gets overlaid onto a map. The city was not using it before I showed up. And over the last two years, we've managed to survey the entire city's water, sewer, and storm drain systems and to build the GIS database of all of that and to basically fully transition the city's public works department from relying on paper maps to using the GIS to, to keep track of its infrastructure. So I, I've been very, very involved in that aspect of the project. And um, I, I think it's been really successful. And we feel like we've produced something, a really valuable tool for the city staff to use so that even after I leave this position, there will be like a, a long-term tool that's available to help uh, city staff take care of the, the infrastructure that we have. These kinds of maps enable cities to plan for future maintenance, to rapidly analyze different flooding scenarios, to identify where neglected infrastructure intersects with areas of fire danger, and more. This tool is particularly important as cities try to prepare for the impacts of climate change. It used to be the case where a big storm would come through, it would dump four feet of snow, and then that snow would slowly melt over the course of many, many weeks or months. And our storm drain system can accommodate that sort of runoff. But because of climate change, this area, like many other places, is projected to see higher average temperatures, more temperature variability, and bigger storms. This means the snow line, the altitude where precipitation falls as snow instead of rain, will probably move higher up into the mountains. Instead of it dumping a bunch of snow that melts slowly, it's all going to fall as rain, then that calls for a completely different storm drain system. And then you know, you combine that with the hazards of like a rain on snow event. Like, let's say that the first storm comes and it drops four feet of snow. And then the second storm comes and it rains warm rain on that snow. Then you're going to have a really, really severe flood. Or what happened in 2021? Unusually hot weather in June led glaciers high on Mount Shasta to melt faster than usual, followed by warm, heavy rains in October. Huge amounts of mud and debris flowed down local creeks, flooding over the banks, and threatened the drinking water system for the town of McLeod, only 10 miles from the town of Mount Shasta. Mount Shasta's stormwater infrastructure is not ready for these climate changes. We have a very old storm drain system that has a lot of deferred maintenance in it, and basically improvements that should have been made 20 years ago still haven't happened. And we have a lot of metal pipes that are rusty and collapsing. And, you know, maybe they were too small to begin with. And now they're old and crumbling and too small. And um, so, yeah, basically the reality is we are going to have to make improvements to prevent 
like major system failure. So when we think about what that means for Mount Shasta's storm drains, uh, it means increasing the size of undersized pipes, replacing aging infrastructure, and then trying to do all like the low impact development and green infrastructure techniques that reduce the amount of runoff being produced in the first place so that um, we're more resilient to future floods, which ties back to, you know, the, the financial concerns of like, how does a tiny community pay for stuff like that? If you listened to the last episode, you already know that coastal cities with a lot of infrastructure find it challenging to fund climate change adaptation. It's also difficult in small rural communities with a small tax base and a staff of only a few people. The state of California and the federal government both offer some financial support to help cities respond to climate change, but it takes time and effort to access it. Partly, of course, this is an issue of how much money local governments have to work with, and I don't want to downplay that. That is a real obstacle. But it's also an issue of what federal, state, and local governments prioritize. On any given day, at every level of government, elected officials and government staff are working to manage innumerable immediate problems. Companies, organizations, and members of the public are clamoring for their attention, trying to move policies in different directions. If you live in a community that has been historically neglected by your local government, you probably feel some very justifiable skepticism about whether your voice would have any effect. But also keep in mind what Juan said about the power of simply putting yourself in the room where decisions are made. The power of taking up space. In the first episode about the San Joaquin Valley region, I introduced Yvette Flores, a college student and community activist from Bakersfield. But I left out something important about her. In early 2019, when she was only 19 years old, she campaigned and won an assembly district election meeting, an ADEM in Kern County. That made her a delegate to the California Democratic Party Convention, where she got to help craft the Democratic Party platform. She had a voice in which policies, ballot measures, and candidates the party would support. I will give her the last word in this episode. The moment that you recognize how much power you have is the moment that meaningful change starts happening in your community. And like, honestly, I'm, a, I'm just a regular person who was very angry <laughs> and like slightly pessimistic. And, um, and like, I, I just started organizing in my community. I reached out to someone one day randomly. I found an email somewhere and that's kind of how this whole journey started. And anybody, anywhere can be an activist or a community organizer. So yeah, I think I think that's what I would leave you off with. It doesn't matter how young you are too. You know, there's some of the the greatest activists that are involved in in my uh in my group are the youngest and um and for all of those pessimists out there, um this work really does give you hope. If you want to learn more about how you can get engaged in local government, check out the future imperfect resources at calgloballed.org. You'll find links about each of the topics mentioned in this episode. In upcoming episodes, I'll be looking at the likely impacts of climate change in other regions of the state. If I haven't gotten to your area yet, don't worry, I'll get there. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. 
And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.